I would invite you, if you'd like to, to turn in your copies of God's Word, if you have one with you, to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, although the words will be on the screen, as I've told uh, folks the last couple of weeks since we have begun this journey through the book of Ezra, Ezra is one of those little books out in the front, and so there's no shame in not knowing exactly where to find that. You can use uh, your table of contents in the Bible if you need to. There's absolutely no shame in that. Very good friend of mine, his name is Terry. Uh, he was converted in his, I believe, his senior year in college at uh, University of Oklahoma, and he went straight into seminary right after that, and he's in the seminary classes, not knowing where any of these books are, and, and uh, there's absolutely no shame uh, in not knowing where things are, but the Lord will meet us here, uh, we believe, in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, today would be tempting to just kind of take a, a little pivot out of Ezra and to do a Mother's Day sermon. Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not just a huge fan of like the, you know, the, the theme sermons. I just believe that God has what he has for us in the next passage. Uh, we believe typically the regular diet of the church is to be walking walking through books of the Bible, a verse or a section at a time so that we're not avoiding anything uncomfortable, we're not missing anything that God might have for us. And so today, uh, the Lord finds us here in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, we need to do a little recap though because as we're uh, going through these stories and everything seems to build on everything that came before it, we remember that uh, God's people are returning to Jerusalem. Why were they not there though? Why were they not at home if they're now returning home? Well, uh, the, the situation was that they had been so disobedient for so many years and had rejected God for so long that he allowed them to get kind of the consequences consequences of their own actions. And for 70 years, they were conquered by another group of people. And so they have been away from home. And now, though, in God's kindness, after this season of discipline, God is allowing his faithful remnant to return home. But uh, things are about to get a little dicey. So far, everything seems to have gone well. They've returned home. God has raised up this king called Cyrus. And the Bible says in Ezra chapter 1 that God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, this pagan, unbelieving, non-God-fearing king, to allow the people to return home. And then the Bible says also in Ezra chapter 1 that God stirred up the hearts of his people to go home. So God not only needed to stir up the heart of the king, but he also needed to stir up the heart of his own people. Everything seems to be going so far, so good. But now, as we step into Ezra chapter 4, we're about to enter into a time full of conflict. For the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah, one commentator said, there is uh, nothing but conflict left. Nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged. We see how the enemy, Satan, seeks to uh, uh, keep his people from being obedient. And we get a little window into that today. You know, this week as I was studying for this, uh, for this sermon, I was thinking about what would be a good title. You know, you're always trying to think up a good title for the sermon. And I, I did a lot of prayer and just a lot of meditation. And I thought, what would be a really good sober, somber, uh, you know, title for this sermon? And uh, this is what I think the Lord gave me. The title of this sermon is Haters Gonna Hate. Okay? Uh, and so today we see how it is that the enemies of God seek to oppose what God is doing in and among 
his people. Let's read the first three verses of Ezra chapter 4, and then we'll pray together. The Bible says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharhadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word, we know this very sobering truth. We never have an interaction with your word that leaves us unchanged. We will either respond to it in a softness of heart, a willingness to hear and obey and to follow you, or we will respond to this interaction that we're about to have with your word by hardening our hearts and just allowing ourselves to grow calloused to what you have said. I pray that we would not uh, consider ourselves people who are able to edit or amend your word. I pray that we would simply submit to it and follow it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would show us beautiful things in the Bible today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're now entering uh, a time where the people of God are experiencing a, a, just a ton of awkwardness. You can imagine what they're walking through. They've been away for 70 years. Some other people, when they left Jerusalem, some other people kind of came and, and filled in the vacuum that was left there. And now, think about this, all their homes are occupied by other people. Uh, all of their typical places, maybe their favorite restaurants closed down. It's got another name or something like that. Uh, but s uh, things are happening in such a way that there is about to be some friction. You can imagine as the people return to Jerusalem, they return to their home, and now they're kind of setting up shop. This doesn't set so well with some people. And there are some people who are attempting to derail what God is doing through three different ways. And the first way that we see in the first three verses is this. There are some people who are opponents of God who seek to oppose God's plan by association, by association. Most often, this is a point that we will see running as a thread throughout Ezra chapters 4 and 5 and really through the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is that this, genuine works of God will always be opposed. Genuine works of God will always be opposed. We see here that when the people come back into Jerusalem and they set about doing what God has told them to do, there are some folks who come up to them and say, hey, can we just join along with you and build with you? We, we've been here the whole time, the whole 70 years that you guys got kicked out. We've been offering sacrifices to God just like we were supposed to be. Hey, why don't we just kind of team up and, and work on this thing together? But the Bible identifies them as adversaries. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 17, the Bible tells us that God actually sent prophets to Jerusalem, to the people who were left behind, and the people did not receive those prophets. The people did not 
care anything about doing what those prophets said to do. So we have a little bit of an indication here that when these people come to the people of God and they say, hey, let's just join in with you, they are not actually saying what they really think. They have ulterior Motives, And what we need to learn is this. The first tactic that we see here used by the enemies of God they, is this. They try to make it sound like they're all just on the same team. Right? They're trying to associate. They're trying to infiltrate. You, you might be reading this and you might be forgiven for wondering, hey, this could be a really good thing. Maybe not everybody got exiled 70 years ago and there's some people left over. And, and hey, the more the merrier, right? The more people who are carrying a sword and, and holding a trowel and maybe they can build the walls and lay the foundation of the, uh, of the temple again and everything can just go well. It'll get the work done even quicker. But we see that there's more going on here than what meets the eye. These people who are actually opposed to the work of God, they try to present themselves as people who are actually on the same team. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this chapter uh, in the 1800s, 1873, he says this, Hypocrites often use the best of words and employ the best of sense to cover their deceit. The people, thankfully, are not fooled. This is God's faithful remnant, right? They, they realize we don't need to even give this any, any ear. We don't need to play with fire. God apparently gave them wisdom to say, hey, guys, you know, we appreciate, appreciate it, but uh, we, we are here to do something different than I think you are here to do. And friends, I think we can apply this truth very readily today. Just as the people of Israel needed to be wise and needed to have discernment about who is interested in the things of God and who is not, so we need to have wisdom and discernment. One of the most destructive schemes of the devil is to plant enemies of God into churches today by association, by affiliation. 1983, there was a psychiatrist and his name was M. Scott Peck and he got very popular. He had a couple best-selling books. Uh, one of them was called People of the Lie. Uh, he claimed to be a Christian, but in one of his books, he argued for open marriages. So I think that's probably a foregone conclusion there. I'm not so sanguine about the whole Christian thing, but uh, he, he wrote a book called People of the Lie where he was trying to figure out where is the line between mental illness and evil. That was the purpose of his book. And what he claimed in this book is this. I'm going to quote him. One of the places that evil people are most likely to be found is within the church. I mean only that evil people tend to gravitate towards piety for the disguise and concealment that it offers them. He was saying basically churches are a really easy target for people with bad Intentions. So why would that be? Well, I mean, the church is a volunteer organization. Someone with bad motives can come in, usually to a church that has very low guidelines on church membership, and they can have a very large voice because, after all, who's going to stand up to it? You know? 
And then the, the bad thing that happens is that people on the outside of the church who are not concerned with the things of the church look in and they, and they see examples of people who don't care anything about repentance, who don't care anything about the Lord. They sing the hymns, but they divide the church. They say the prayers, but they slander their brother. They fill the plate, but they refuse repentance. They claim the faith, but they withhold forgiveness. People on the outside look in and see these examples of supposedly transformed lives and they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that gospel. The Bible warns about this, 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Titus 1 says something similar. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And friends, these are hard words. I'm trying, whenever I say hard words, I try to say hard words as softly as possible, but this is what the Bible says is a threat to the gospel. The Bible says that a threat to the gospel is when our actions do not dovetail with our work. So we should be on guard. We should be aware of the tactic of the devil to oppose God's work through association. But then their strategy changes. When association doesn't work, these opponents, they they shift gears. And it says this in verses 4 and 5, they pivot to agitation. I don't know if, if you've ever been agitated by somebody, but here are a few things that the people do when they try to agitate the people of God. It says this, verses 4 and 5, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build. So they used discouragement and fear to agitate. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. What we see next is that when the opponents cannot infiltrate and cannot associate, they try to agitate. They try to discourage. They're kind of the naysayers. They begin to to say all kinds of things. Well, hey, your plan won't work and and you've been gone too long and you're you're too small a people. They 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 mirror sometimes the people that maybe we face in our lives who who are ready to point out every fault and every failure and every shortcoming, but they're so unwilling to see anything good and praise it. They're so unwilling to offer any positive suggestions. Social media, of course, today has only inflamed this. And then they also use fear. Another tactic of the enemy is to cause us to think, well, what if? What if they're right? What if we are too small a people? What if God really isn't with us and we've come back here to Jerusalem and he's just going to let us die here? I wonder, I wonder how many of us, how many believers have been held back from obediently following Jesus because we were afraid of the consequences, afraid of what others thought or afraid of 
even our safety, afraid, afraid that we might lose some kind of freedom over our own lives or we might lose the grip on the picture-perfect life that we want. The last thing they do is they try to poison the well. They bribe people to go share false news. This is the original fake news that's going on here in Ezra chapter 4. And then lastly, when this agitation doesn't work, they pivot to accusation. They go from association to agitation to accusation. It says this in verse 6 and following. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And basically what happens here is that they send a letter to the new king who doesn't remember the old setup that they had under Cyrus. They send a letter to the new king saying, hey, these people are coming and they're trying to rebuild this rebellious city. If you let them build their temple, if you let them put up walls, they will rebel against you, king. You better put your thumb down on these people. It's slander, but the reality is it works. What we see in the next few verses is that their plot is hatched and then finally their plot is successful. If you'll pick up in verse 16, the Bible says this, we made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and if its walls are finished, you will then have no possession beyond the river. Then the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, and a uh, uh, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. If you skip down to verse 21, therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Church, it's important for us to see these things, to see how the enemy was working way back then in Ezra chapter 4, because his playbook has not changed. The way that the enemy seeks to try to derail genuine works of God is through association, through sending improperly motivated people inside the church. Secondly, he seeks to do that through agitation, gossip, slander, fear, discouragement. And then lastly, he'll do it through accusation. I would encourage you, the next time you hear someone gossiping or slandering, just go ahead and tell them, did you know that the church of Jesus Christ already has a full-time accuser and his name is Satan and you probably don't want to be on his side? All right, so let's, let's ease up with the gossip and with the slander, because this is straight out of Satan's playbook. But opposition, opposition, however, is not necessarily a sign that you're doing anything wrong. What we see in the Bible is that a true work of God will always be opposed. And so we should expect opposition to occur. We should expect the devil not to like disciples being raised up, families being equipped, people getting baptized, and uh, the church going on mission. I only wonder sometimes is, is the more effective that we become as a church, the more opposition we can expect to face. I'm not saying that we're just doing tons of things right, but as I see a group being raised up to go on a mission trip to Massachusetts, as I see some folks who have really stepped up to the plate to love our neighbors through our 
ESL ministry. As I hear stories of people having gospel conversations, as I just hear so much evidence of so much good things happening, I know that the enemy is only a couple steps behind it, desiring to squelch it. And so, friends, we should be wise to his devices. We should not be ignorant, and we should not be naive. Here's the last point that I want to make to you. Point number two. God's plans are never finally frustrated. God will get his way. I saw someone on Christian Twitter, which is a very dark place to go. I would not encourage you to go there. Uh, But somebody on Christian Twitter last week saying, sometimes God doesn't get his way. I'm like, I don't know if I want to serve a God who is not completely in control. God's plans, though, point number two, our final point, God's plans are never finally frustrated in the end. God will get his way. If you look at Ezra chapter 5, the Bible says this, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Isn't this interesting? What happens here is, remember the king told them to stop the work, and then finally here come some prophets who tell them, hey guys, I thought God told you to be doing this. Yeah, but the king told us to stop. Yeah, but God told you to do it. And so who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey the king? And it looks like some guys said, okay, well, we'll just ask for forgiveness instead of permission, and they just pick up their sword and their trowel, and they start rebuilding. And they just get about the work that God had told them to get about, but uh, from which they had become distracted. We hear about this in Haggai. I told you last week that the things happening in Ezra are the same things that are happening in Haggai. This is what the Bible says in Haggai. Verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel and to and the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people. Always be careful of what they are saying, right? Be careful about what folks are out here saying. These people say that the time has not yet come. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time. I'm sorry. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them, uh, uh, does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know what the prophet is telling the people of God here? He's saying... The reason that you don't have enough food, the reason that you don't seem to have enough clothes is not a material problem. It's a spiritual problem. 
I'm no prosperity gospel preacher of these guys who get on TV and sell you the green prayer cloth because they're trying to raise money for a Learjet so they can fly around the world and preach the gospel. It's not what I'm about. But sometimes, friends, God allows us to feel the pinch of our own disobedience so that we can return to him. And God is telling the people here, you know why you have clothes but you're never warm? You know why you you have food but you're, you're always hungry? It could be that your temporal problem has a spiritual root. The crazy thing about obeying God is this. When you focus on meeting your own needs, sometimes our own needs go unmet, don't they? But when you focus on following and obeying God, God takes care of meeting all of our needs. That's the crazy backwardsness to how his kingdom works. As I I think about how all of the things that we've considered today, how to close, how to kind of land this plane, earlier we ask God to bless some families as they seek to raise their children. We've honored mothers. Um, as we're praying for these families, we don't know all of the cultural winds that are going to prevail over the course of their life, but I think if we're kind of gauging which way the wind is blowing, uh, we can see that it makes sense to be preparing the next generation for an extraordinary kind of faith they're probably going to have to face things that none of us ever even contemplated. Can I invite you to see how the Bible thinks of opposition, the opposition that our kids may be facing, the opposition that the people in Ezra 4 and 5 faced? Can I draw you to look at Jesus who thought that it was worth it to be opposed? The Bible says this in Isaiah 53. This is beautiful. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. In other words, he carried them on his back. And he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's just a big word for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Friends, I've spoken a lot today about how the gospel will be opposed, about how God's people may be opposed. I've spoken about how Christians can expect their message to be opposed. All of this is true, but I want to ask you to look through this, through Ezra 4 and 5, to see something deeper. And that's that Jesus was willing to be opposed so that we could go free. Jesus was willing to take on all of our sin so that we could be accepted. He was willing to be opposed on earth so that we could be invited into heaven. He became a man of sorrows so that we could be a people of peace. He was willing to be rejected so that we could be welcomed. 
Jesus was willing to die so that we could live eternally. And I can't think of a better message to summarize on Mother's Day, on this day of dedicating kids and families. I would ask you, friends, have you traded places with this man who was willing to be opposed and was willing to suffer for you? The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus offers to take all of our badness, and there's plenty, and to give us his goodness if we would follow him. I would invite you, respond to that message if you never have. Believers, Let's be equipped and ready to be opposed. Let's pray. God.